Good morning. This is Faithfully Memphis on WYXR. This is the Reverend Sandy Webb from Church of the Holy Communion in East Memphis, sitting in today for the Right Reverend Phoebe Rofe, Episcopal Bishop of West Tennessee. My guest this morning is Pastor Rufus Smith of Hope Church, who will reflect with me on the inspiring work of Memphis civil rights leader James Netters, who died this past Saturday. Pastor Rufus and I will also discuss the holy work of building relationships across differences and on the challenging work of observing Christmas in the midst of a pandemic. But as a blessing on your day, we open our program with a lovely anthem from St. Paul by Felix Mendelssohn. Thank you. 
Pastor Rufus Smith has been serving at Hope Church since 2010 and serving as Hope's senior pastor since 2013. Under his leadership, Hope Church has experienced remarkable growth in size, impact, and ethnic diversity. Rufus is also the founder of the Memphis Christian Pastors Network, an ethnically and denominationally diverse association of ministers that seeks to bridge the trust gap between clergy and Memphis. He joins us this morning to discuss his success in connecting Memphians who might not otherwise have connected with each other, and to reflect on the unique nature of the upcoming Christmas holiday. Pastor Rufus Smith, welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Well, thank you, my friend uh, Sandy, for the invitation. You're most welcome. Rufus, this week, Memphis is mourning one of its gentle giants, Dr. James Netters. Dr. Netters was a veteran of the civil rights movement in Memphis, one of the first African Americans to sit on the Memphis City Council, and the pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church for no less than 63 years. I know that Dr. Netters was a friend of yours, and I'm so sorry for your loss. What will be Jim Netters' legacy for you? <laughs> um, for me, Dr. Netters uh, was a trailblazer, uh, a pace setter, and uh, I will always remember how he kept front and center uh, the good news of the gospel as it related to all people. That was his driving force. That also caused him to get involved outside of, quote unquote, the church arena uh, so that the gospel could be practical uh, and not just spiritual. I'll always remember that. So justice for him was a religious matter, not just a social one. Absolutely. Yeah. He lived it, uh, preached it, taught it. Um, And he was what we would call a pedestrian pastor. He was out among the people, much like Jesus was, and was not stuck in, um, in the temple. You introduced me to Dr. Netters a few years back. At the time, he was about 90 years old and was still turning up at events that advocated for justice in the community. One of our colleagues asked him what motivated him to keep going, and I'll never forget Dr. Netters' response. He cited the words of Mahalia Jackson, If I can help somebody as I travel along, then my living shall not be in vain. Amen. What does the current generation of justice-minded clergy in Memphis have to learn from the example of Dr. Netters and his contemporaries? Yeah, I I think that they, uh, we can learn um, the patience of suffering, um, winsome words, and courageous deeds. All of those depicted Dr. Netters. He was able to um, shut off the noise and the uh, divisive rhetoric and use winsome words that were gospel motivated uh, that translated for him to courageous deeds. Um, And along the way, recognizing that things were not going to change overnight uh, was long suffering with people and patient through trouble. And uh, in this instantaneous society, I think we um, of the next generation can learn from that. I think you're so right, and that I so often in my own ministry want to see things happen right away, 
But the example of people like him suggests that we have to wait. Um, as Dr. King yes. said, the arc of the moral universe is long um, and yes. often longer than I would like for it to be. Amen. To what extent do you think that we today, as justice-minded clergy, are carrying on the work of Dr. Netters and the other giants of the civil rights movement? And to what extent do you think we're doing a new thing? Maybe to put it another way, is there anything new under the sun? <laughs> uh, that's a great question um, from uh, <clears throat> that classic book of Ecclesiastes. In general, I don't think there's anything new under the sun in terms of the nature, uh, the fallen human condition. With respect to tactics, um, I am encouraged, actually, that this uh, movement for justice is not simply now dominated by one ethnicity, uh, that this next generation, Black, white, Latino, Asian, um, have learned from the past generation that if we are going to continue to be the kind of country we want to be and aspire to the ideals of our Constitution, it is not just going to be uh, led by one ethnicity. And so with respect to this generation, I think that uh, that is new uh, in terms of, of a tactic. I think it was John Lewis, uh, the late great civil rights leader, who said, we all got here on different boats, but we're all in the same boat now. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. The occasion when you introduced me to Dr. Netters was at an event sponsored by the Memphis Christian Pastors Network, an organization, an organization that you founded to bridge the trust gap between clergy and Memphis. Please tell our listeners about the Memphis Christian Pastors Network and what your hopes are for its future. Um, well, Sandy, the, the Memphis Christian Pastors Network is a collection of clergy, as you said, um, who are meeting across ethnic and denominational lines. Um, it's, it's a conviction of many that uh, as goes our clergy, will go our congregations. And so... Uh, it's obvious that we as pastors are doing good works in certain places um, that we have chosen or been called to locally and globally, but let's just say in Memphis. The problem is that our good works are not good enough. That is, we don't have a magnitude of scale that's way too low, and the rate of change for people in real time is way too slow. And the reason is because we actually work in silos and not collaboratively together. And so the Memphis Christian Pastors Network was designed with, with that objective. And that is, how can we get to know each other better and uh, love each other better, therefore trust each other better, and then work more collaborative, collaboratively together? It's not that we didn't have respect. Uh, as pastors, we have collegial respect for the person as well as the position, but it's sort of arm's length when it comes to relationship, which falls far short of the biblical uh, standard of fellowship. And so it was designed so that um, pastors could come together around a meal, have candid conversation, 
prayers, and also have fellowship with one another outside of churches in an attempt to cultivate empathic relationships that could be leveraged to working more collaboratively together. It may come as a surprise to some people that the rector of Church of the Holy Communion and the senior pastor of Hope Church are personal <laughs> friends, and I think exactly. that's I think that's a legacy of uh, the work of the Memphis Christian Pastors Network. And just as an aside, um, our friendship began several years back when you uh, reached out to me on the phone and asked if you could come to visit me in my office for one hour. When I asked why, you explained that you had made a uh, goal of visiting 10 pastors whom you didn't know in their offices and building relationships. What were those conversations like? Those were some very rich conversations, and they were welcomed conversations. Uh, I was personally convicted, having been in Memphis uh, and been uh, fortunate to be a pastor of a large church, that I did not know uh, local pastors like I should have. And so kind of silently whining about us not working together, uh, I remember the phrase of someone who said, uh, instead of cursing the dark, why don't you light a candle? And therefore, um, I said, I need to get out and uh, meet people. I mean, I had never met the pastor right next door to me at First Assembly, and and we share a lot together. And I had never met the uh, pastor down the streets two blocks away, the Methodist Church, nor had I met the, uh, the Mormon minister that was one block away from that. And so I said, let me start on my own block and uh, go and speak to these pastors. And one thing led to another. Those conversations were rich. They were welcomed. And um, it eventually led to us being able to uh, organize Memphis Christian Pastors Network. And I learned a lot. I, I, I learned um, about these uh, men and women's lives uh, and was inspired by the work that they were doing. Rufus, as you well know, so many clergy associations in Memphis have been short-lived. What makes the Memphis Christian Pastors Network different? And at what point did you first sense that it was going to be successful? Uh, I think one of the things that make it different is um, the concept of sharing a meal together and uh, having candid conversation around current events together using what uh, we understand uh, to be the biblical background. So basically, it's cultivating empathic relationships as people began to open up to each other. And those relationships then, I think, cement uh, an organization. So I think that's that's number one. Um, number two, uh, with respect to our um, fellowship one with the other, uh, it may be uh, trivial, but outside uh, functions that we have done, whether it's um, uh, being at a Grizzlies basketball game or being at uh, a Redbirds game or uh, some other function outside of the church helps us to see the commonalities that we all share in life with our families. Uh, so ultimately, it's relationships that uh, keep us galvanized. Relationship seems to be critical for you in this work. So too does the word trust. What do you mean when you refer to a trust gap between clergy? When I say trust gap, um, I mean 
not that we do not um, like each other, but because we are really ignorant of our life rhythms, backgrounds, and experiences, it's just natural for me to put my hands up and have a caution sign when I'm asked to be involved in a particular um, um, program. It's not that I don't trust that you are a um, man or woman of God. I just don't know you. And that, that's a level of trust. And so until we bridge that ignorance gap uh, and that relationship gap, we really won't embrace each other and really think through, okay, how can our congregations work together for the greater good of Memphis? Um, and if pastors do that, then I think it'll have a ripple effect within our parishes and our congregations uh, to be able to do the same. I couldn't agree more. The Memphis Christian Pastors Network is hardly your first experience of creating relationship across ethnic differences. Hope Church is among the very few churches nationwide that has achieved its goal of becoming more ethnically diverse, as was celebrated a few years back in a feature article in the Gospel Coalition. I wish that we had time for you to tell us that whole story, but are there any key pieces of advice that Hope Church could offer to other churches that want to diversify? Um, I I hesitate to uh, hold us up as an example, but... Um, it, it, it began as a holy discontent of the founding pastor of Hope Church and the senior associate pastor, Dr. Uh, Craig Strickland and Dr. Eli Morris, uh, who um, recognized that hope being in Cordova uh, did not reflect its one three five mile community. And then being in Memphis, that was, um, you know, 60 percent African-American it did not reflect uh, that as well. And so the, the holy discontent was, what would it look like if the church here in Cordova simply reflected the community of Cordova? Um, and what needs to happen in order for that to come to fruition? So it started with that conviction. Um, and then along with that, we've heard for decades, which is true, that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Um, what are the advantages if that was not the case? And so I came uh, from Houston, uh, from a church that had transitioned from being monoethnic to multi-ethnic, and saw the value over 13 years of what people of different ethnic and economic backgrounds couldn't do together to solve some of the social ills of our day versus a uh, mono-ethnic congregation and was able to bring that experience here to Memphis where there was a conviction that we wanted to look like our neighborhood. I love that phrase, holy discontentment, and leading, listening to what it might be that God is saying to the congregation in terms of what's next for you. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so with that, that starts a snowball effect of what does that mean for staffing? What does that mean for um, systems within congregations? What does that mean for symbols? Uh, what does that mean for uh, work and outreach in the community? And once you start thinking through 
those uh, elements, then you can test whether or not a congregation is really ready uh, to reflect this community. Pastor Rufus, it's time for us to take a break, but don't go anywhere because we have much more to discuss when we return. I can Welcome back to Faithfully Memphis. This is the Reverend Sandy Webb sitting in for the Right Reverend Phoebe Rofe, the Episcopal Bishop of West Tennessee. 
My guest today is Pastor Rufus Smith of Hope Church. Pastor Rufus, in so many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic has advanced the consolidation of privilege in Memphis and around the United States. The communities that have been hit the hardest by the pandemic, both medically and economically, are those that were already operating with the smallest amount of margin. Mm. What will be the long-term consequences of this for the cause of justice in Memphis, and how should people of faith respond? Sandy, I'm really optimistic. I trust that the long-term consequences of the coronavirus, which expose uh, the weaknesses that you just suggested, are going to be positive. I think that um, we have been held captive enough by this pandemic uh, to really see uh, some of these um, um, weaknesses that are within our system as you said, economically, educationally, and every otherwise. Um, and, and now it has caused organizations that normally do, do not work together, Chamber of Commerce, faith leaders, uh, et cetera, began to collaborate and see what can we do to fix um, these gaps. So I'm optimistic that a work has started that would not be short-lived. It seems to get back to that theme of relationship with you and understanding how different organizations in town are working, how different congregations in town are working, and where we all have shared and common goals. Exactly. And, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, you you have these conversations as well. Um, I believe in sovereignty. And so when this triple a centrifugal force of a global health pandemic, economic stress, and then civil unrest and protests uh, all happened simultaneously. We had nowhere to run. We had no escape. We couldn't go to ball games. We couldn't go to social events. We couldn't go to movies. We couldn't go to Broadway plays. We couldn't do anything. And so we were glued inside our homes or or attached very closely. We couldn't even go to church uh, in a safe way. And it it caused us to reflect on some of the cracks in our system. And so I'm optimistic that that will be a silver lining in days to come. It seems totally fitting to me that you are the senior pastor of a church named Hope. (laughs) Well, all churches have hope. As someone as well said, you, you know, a man, a woman can live 40 days without food. They can live three days without water, eight minutes without air, but only about one second without hope. And and you are being self-deprecating because Holy Communion is crucial and critical uh, to what uh, happens in this city. So we are all um, ministers of hope. We are indeed, and it's the best job in the world to get to lead one of these congregations. Amen. The role of faith in the community has been in the news recently as various emergency orders and judicial rulings have sought to find the right balance between our constitutionally protected right to the free exercise of religion and the way that this particular virus travels between people when they gather, and especially when they sing. Yet, with special privilege under the law comes special responsibility to our wider community. How have you dealt with questions of public health at Hope Church over these last nine months? And what have you seen happening in other faith communities? (laughs) Well, as you wrestle with this too, you know, um, 
it was very difficult for us uh, as of mid-March to um, close the doors to in-person worship. But we did that for five months. And we did it because we thought, as you said, we had a public responsibility to promote health and gatherings uh, together inside close proximity uh, certainly did not do that. As we have learned more about um, the disease and and how it spreads, uh, after five months uh, and consulting with um, our uh, virologists and epidemiologists, healthcare people, um, it was decided for us to open again in person, albeit with safety protocols, masks are mandatory at Hope, um, and physical distancing is mandatory as well. Um, and, you know, we're not encouraged to linger. Uh, mass, of course, uh, prohibits uh, singing of any consequence, um, though you can sing under your breath. Um, and so we, we looked at the first five months and said we need to do our part uh, to help public health. And then as we learned more and schools were opening, businesses were encouraged to open, uh, we decided to offer in-person worship under those safety protocols uh, again, in the interest of public health. I think every pastor would agree that this has been the most challenging season of um, our ministries to date, but in some ways it's also been one of the most creative seasons of our ministries to date. Have there, have there been any silver linings for you in all of this? Have you seen anything happening in, the, in ministry during the pandemic that you just don't think would have happened otherwise? Absolutely. Um, uh, you being a pastor of a large parish, uh, as well as myself, I think the words of uh, one of our pastors uh, here in the city says it best for me. And he said, I have met with more people in my congregation in the last several months than I have in the last 10 years. And so the um, magic of technology allows me to be able to meet with uh, more of my congregation face-to-face, albeit virtually, uh, and have good conversations uh, than it did before the pandemic. That's just one silver lining. And as one of my pastor friends said, uh, it feels good to get back to pastoring, uh, which basically is uh, meeting people, um, listening to them, and uh, helping to guide and shepherd each other uh, in in life. And so, yes, I, I think that has been a silver lining. And then secondly, I think the church, um, at least I was, uh, slow to move into the technological age uh, where we were missing a lot of people um, now have been forced to do that, and we'll never go back. Uh, the rubber band is stretched um, and, and we'll now be using in-person plus technology, uh, I believe, to reach more people at a deeper level. With our leadership at Church of the Holy Communion, the metaphor that I have been using is of department store retail in the 1990s, when they were having to make the decision about whether to invest in this new and strange world of internet shopping. <laughs> 
And those that trusted only in their old procedures have had a difficult time, but those who were courageous enough to step out and say, this is a new way of doing what we've always done uh, have been very successful. And I think the church faces a similar moment right now. I concur 100%. In fact, we can look at some data to say that our small group participation, um, our session meetings with leaders, elders, deacons, uh, pastors, those have increased about, um, I mean, the attendance have held steady and increased about 30% because formerly when people could not come to meetings, they were out of town or there was some issue at home, they simply missed the meeting. But now they can be out of town and they can um, join us virtually and uh, small groups can do the same thing. And so people are still staying connected when they can't be in person uh, because of what you just said. Um, More people have been forced to get comfortable with technology. Here's the question that's on everybody's mind. Christmas Eve is two weeks from today. Every church is having to figure out how to celebrate Christmas in a safe yet celebratory way, and every churchgoer is making decisions about whether it's safe to participate. Even as I read this question, I realize that Christmas Eve is one week from the day of this broadcast, (laughs) so I need to get on it. What advice do you have for church leaders, and for me who forgot when Christmas was, and church members as they wrestle with these important questions? I don't know if I have any advice, Sandy. I I can only tell you what we've decided to do. Um, You know, it's almost um, a decision that you're going to get criticized if you do something. You'll get criticized if you do nothing. We've agonized over Christmas Eve. To put it in context, we normally have six Christmas Eve worship hours, three on the 23rd and three on the 24th which averages about 19 or 20,000 people who come to those uh, worship hours. We simply felt it was irresponsible to do anything close to that. Uh, So we have decided that we are going to have a drive-through experience where people can, um, at a distance, uh, watch some of the uh, ministries, see some of the people they haven't seen in a while. But we have also decided to have... um, three worship hours limited to 800 people. We can seat 800 people in our auditorium safely, six feet apart, uh, wearing masks. And so um, those in-person worship hours are severely limited, uh, not only in the number of them, but the number of people that can gather uh, inside our large auditorium. And it's been very difficult because uh, that means so many people will not be able to enjoy Christmas Eve as they have. Um, but it's a, it was a very tough decision to do nothing and do all virtual, or do we continue what we've been doing safely um, with uh, in-person worship and still do Christmas Eve? But it's, it's every congregation has to decide for themselves, and it's just been agonizing. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, some of the most difficult decisions of my ordained life. As, as we wrap up this call, um, I'm reflective of that there will be some people who stay, quote, safer at home, as we've been saying this Christmas, either because their church is not offering in-person worship, or they don't feel safe going, or they're not able to be accommodated given whatever the capacity restrictions are at their community of faith. 
It reminds me, though, that the early church began with home worship. Christians have been worshiping at home for longer than they've been worshiping in church buildings. And I'm, exactly. I'm wondering if there's anything of the experience of the early church that you think is relevant to our experience today. Great that you bring that question up. Uh, just this past week, we, um, as a staff and executive team, started looking at how we could help our people worship more uh, effectively at home and stay in connection uh, with God and uh, with each other. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. So the early church really teaches us as they were, as you said, growing and didn't have capacity uh, to meet. Uh, and they were able to worship at, at home, not only worship at home God, but also serve each other uh, in the, the local communities that they were in. And I think they teach us as we go back and rethread our way back through that biblical history of how we can better do that today. And so we have started those conversations of how do we help the average family worship at home and um, serve each other still in the community and the people that they are connected to. And that biblical blueprint um, will be of great help. Rufus, as I mentioned, our friendship began with a phone call. And it seems entirely appropriate that I'm interviewing you over the telephone today. Pastor Rufus Smith, <laughs> thank you for joining me on Faithfully Memphis this morning. Thank you, sir. I'm honored. The Faithfully Memphis Saint of the Day segment has featured some true headliners from the pages of the biblical text and from the annals of church history. Today, however, I am drawn to an understudy. I'm drawn to a voice from the chorus, to someone whose name would never be on the biblical marquee. Today's Saint of the Day is Tertius, an early Christian whose name appears in Romans 16.22 and nowhere else. Romans is St. Paul's longest and most complicated work, and after 16 chapters of Paul's reflections on the nature of sin and sanctification, we find this sentence, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the name of the Lord. Since Paul wrote Romans, an obvious question follows, who is Tertius, and why is he claiming to be the writer of the letter? The best explanation that I have heard so far is that Tertius was Paul's secretary, literally the writer of the letter, and that he autographed his work. If this is true, he can become a role model for us in the virtue of Christian humility. 
Imagine how honored Tertius must have been to sit at the feet of the apostle and to write down everything he had to say. Imagine how excited Tertius must have been to know that his own hand was going to be a vehicle for spreading God's good news. Yet, despite all this excitement, Tertius was content to labor in anonymity, except for this one case in which his love for the followers of Christ moved him to include a word of blessing. Tertius pointed the glory for his work back to the person who dictated it, and that person pointed the glory back to God. Every musical manuscript that Johann Sebastian Bach ever wrote was signed with a motto from the Protestant Reformation, Soli Deo Gloria, Glory to God Alone. This motto would have suited Tertius well, and it can serve each of us well as we seek to follow the humble ways of Jesus in a culture that does not prize humility. I am grateful for Tertius and for all the unsung saints in every age who have modeled the virtue of faithful humility in their lives. Glory should not belong to the Christian, but to the Christ.
For more than 120 years, the Salvation Army of Memphis and the Mid-South has been serving our community in the name of Christ. The Salvation Army's ministries seek to reduce poverty, homelessness, addiction, and violence in our community by providing direct services to the people in greatest need. The Salvation Army's Purdue Center of Hope is home for 25% of the homeless women in Shelby County, 34% of homeless families, and 36% of homeless children. As if that were not enough, the Salvation Army also provides angel tree gifts for thousands of children and senior adults in Shelby County every year. It offers residential rehabilitation services at no cost for people recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. The Salvation Army's services have never been more essential than they are in the midst of this difficult season. But the pandemic has limited their ability to raise funds through their signature Christmas Red Kettle campaign. Please join me in helping our neighbors in need by making a gift to the Salvation Army of Memphis and the Mid-South at www.kettle901.org. It was a pleasure for me to sit in today for Bishop Phoebe Rofe on WYXR's Faithfully Memphis. Until she returns, stay safe and stay positive.